You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. Good morning, Oak Hill. I want you to know that I so desire to be there with you this morning in person, uh, but I trust and I pray that you understand that our family is dealing with COVID in our household, and uh, many of you have dealt with that as well. And so uh, thank you for bearing with the limitations of this morning. Thank you for your prayers. And I'm so glad that you are gathered together, committed to hearing God's word, recognizing that that the church is more than a a preacher in a place. Uh, The church is the gathering of God's people. We as elders decided that this was the best method for me to communicate God's word that he has laid upon my heart for you and for us today. And so we're going to go to God right now. And I just want to urge you to pray and prepare your own heart to receive what he has to give you. Heavenly Father, be with me in this moment as I proclaim your word. And then be with the hearers when they hear it, that they would receive it. I pray that you would work by the power of your Holy Spirit to overcome all of the limitations, all of the barriers, because you are not limited at all. And I pray that that our church would be built up through the preaching of your word, that we would become the disciples that you want us to become. Show us where we need to grow. Show us the steps that we can take. Lord, may our hearts be set on Christ. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 14 to 20 today. If you don't have a Bible, if you're if you're in the service, you can uh, look at the seat back in front of you, or if you're in one of the red chairs, uh, there should be Bibles at the end of the row for you. Uh, we want every person having a copy of God's Word in their hands. If you're online, there's a link to you version where you can find all the notes there as well. And as you're turning in the Bible to Mark chapter one, I, I want to ask you this question: uh, Would you consider yourself a decisive or indecisive person? Are you someone who makes a decision quickly once obtaining all the facts, or are you someone who who takes a long time to think about something, to to weigh it out, to even maybe get more facts, and you just never feel like you have quite enough information? Now, now I want you to understand that there's no harm in being cautious at times, depending on the situation. There's, There's no shame in that, but but I would suggest to you that there are important times in life when we must all decisively respond to the facts that are in front of us. And that is especially true when there's any degree of urgency to the matter at hand. Now, you need to know that the call to follow Jesus is one of those urgent matters that demands a decisive response. In fact, I would suggest to you that it is the most urgent matter that demands a decisive response. You see, some people are are confronted with Jesus and they think, you know what? Okay, I I get that Jesus claimed a lot of stuff, right? And, And maybe I'll get to investigating that at a different season of life where I'm less busy or 
there's just not as much stuff going on or whatever it is, maybe later I'll consider Jesus more. Maybe they feel like they don't have all of the facts that they need to, to make such a, a life-changing decision. Even those who, of us who have already started following Jesus, who, who have put their faith in him and given their lives to him as Savior and Lord, even some of us can put off pursuing spiritual growth in Christ because of busyness, maybe a trial that we're going through, or maybe just plain old complacency. But Throughout the book of Mark, and especially today, we are going to see that the call of Jesus Christ demands a decisive response. I'm not talking about an impulsive response. It's not a response that does not count the cost, but nevertheless, it is a decisive response. And so here's our big idea for today. Decisively respond to the call of the good news by repenting, following, becoming, and multiplying. We're going to look at those four decisive responses today. Decisively respond to the call of the good news by repenting, following, becoming, and multiplying. We must decisively respond ourselves, and then we need to see the urgency behind the call of Jesus so that we can help others decisively respond to Jesus. I think sometimes we're afraid of that as we Proclaim the truth of Jesus to others, that, that we need to call people to a decision. We're, we're in the second week of our series through the book of Mark, and our, our vision for this series is simply stated, uh, now is the time to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now is the time. Urgency, decisiveness, now is the time to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Last week, we began looking at, at the prologue to Mark's gospel, and Mark is preparing us in that section of, of what we need to know and understand the, the backstory before he gets into the real meat and bones of, of the message of, of Jesus's ministry. And we looked at some preparations that we need to make if we're going to tell others the good news ourselves. We, we said that we must prepare our hearts to love Jesus for who he is, not for who we want him to be. Uh, Marcus is presenting Jesus as he actually is in order to cut through the confusion of what many people thought about him. And, and that same type of presentation of Jesus and understanding of Jesus is just as necessary today. And as we get to know Jesus, the result, is, I believe, is loving him. If he is stirring by his spirit in our hearts, the result is loving him. We then need to prepare ourselves to turn to the straight paths of Jesus. We're going to talk about that even more today, that Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf so that we could walk in his way. Not so that we could do our own thing. Not so that he could put his stamp of approval on our way, but so that we could walk in his way. You cannot follow Jesus without repenting. Turning, which means then that we're going to need to prepare to fight temptation in, in the power of Christ. What we saw in the wilderness temptation that Jesus resisted and defeated Satan where we could not, that, that he took on our shame, our guilt, our fear, and he came out victorious 
When we said that the gospel is not learn to fight sin like Jesus did, ultimately the gospel is learn to fight sin in the power of Jesus. And there's a difference there. We need to fight temptation, not in our own strength. We need to turn to the straight paths of Christ, not in our own strength, but in the power of Christ. The result will be that we will see ourselves as participants in his message. That was the last thing that we looked at last week, and it's actually where I want to start today. Verses 14 and 15, we, we, we looked at them at the end of the sermon last week, and they are so critical to the book of Mark that I wanted to cover them in two separate sermons. And really, they, they form a transition between the prologue, the preparation material, and the meat of Mark's portrayal of Christ's ministry. And they are essential to understanding the call that Jesus makes to his first disciples in verses 16 to 20. So read with me in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. Mark writes, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat bending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Are you seeing where I'm getting the, the big idea for the day from the text? Decisively respond to the call of, of the good news by repenting, following, becoming, and multiplying. Today, we want to see those four decisive responses to Jesus' call. And the first is this, repent with urgency. Repent with urgency. Mark gives us a time indicator at the beginning of verse 14, which is a little bit unusual for him. He says, now after John was arrested... This moves us forward in time a pretty good bit, but we wouldn't know that simply by reading Mark's gospel. We have to put together the other, other gospel accounts, and John's gospel is the only one to record a fair amount of time where Jesus was doing ministry that happened between the time of his baptism and wilderness temptation and his return to Galilee. This was ministry that occurred simultaneously with John the Baptist before John was arrested, but Mark moves us right from his prologue preparations directly into the ministry in Galilee after John's request, or I'm sorry, arrest. And, and the effect is this sense that there's an urgency to this message of Jesus. Verses 14 and 15 are like the summary message of, of Jesus' preaching. Everywhere that Jesus goes, he, he preaches some form of this sermon. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he's not just saying, like, 
you know, I was chilling out in Nazareth for 30 years, and, and now just felt like the right time to come out and start preaching. And he's not saying, you know what, God was watching Satan's moves like a master chess player, and he decided it was, it was time to start doing something about the problems in the world. And, and so here I am in response to Satan. No, no. Jesus is saying, God has been setting up everything in all of human history for this moment right here. From the failures of Israel to keep their covenant with God to all of the world events that led to the rise of the Roman Empire and the current occupation of, of Israel by Rome, all of it, every event in human history was moving toward this moment, these three and a half years, or you could say the entire life of Jesus is 33 years when Jesus would usher in the kingdom of God. Now this phrase kingdom of God is, is so packed with meaning. Essentially, it is the rule and reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. It is the rule and reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. And so it starts all the way back in Genesis 1. As man and woman were created in God's image, they were to be representatives of God's dominion in the Garden of Eden, which was essentially heaven on earth. When they gave into the temptation of the serpent, they, they gave their authority over to him, and he was allowed a limited but temporary dominion over the earth. But Israel was, was still to represent his kingdom. God called out this people for himself, and he says, I'm going to be their God. And they're going to be my people, and I'm going to dwell in their midst. So he set up the tabernacle and then the temple. Again, literally heaven on earth. But then in the coming of Jesus, he came and he dwelled among us. And in his defeat of Satan, that ancient serpent, the kingdom of God, was going to come back to the whole earth. First in the hearts of his people as he would repent and believe, as they repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then as they carry his good news to the whole world. And then when, when Jesus returns, his kingdom is going to come in its fullness. And so the, the call to repent and believe is the call really to turn from the dominion of Satan that is marked by sin and death and to turn to the kingdom of God that is marked by righteousness and eternal life. See, repentance is a turning from and a turning to. Repentance always involves turning from and turning to. Turning from sin and the ways of this world and turning to God and his kingdom. And it results in believing. Remember, repentance is a change of mind. And so the result of repentance is new belief, new faith that Jesus is the promised, anointed Savior King. Remember, we talked about that last week, that he is the Christ. That the kingdom comes through his life, death, resurrection, and glorification. You see... Jesus has freed us from the domain of darkness, to borrow language from Paul. He's freed us by taking our sin upon himself, by paying the price that we deserve to pay, and then by rising again victorious. 
And the Bible says that when we believe in him, we die to ourselves. We die to the old self, to the power of sin, and we rise to new life in Christ. Life as a citizen in his kingdom, as a member of his household, as a part of his body, as a building block in his temple. All those things that we talked about in the Ephesians series last month. That's the good news. That Jesus is our promised, anointed Savior King, and that everything is set into proper order when we believe Him and live accordingly. And so there is an urgency to this message. The time is fulfilled. Now is the time. That's where we get that. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Now, this is the time. The time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, this is the time to decide whether we will submit to Jesus as king or whether we will still live under the dominion of Satan. Now, if you ask me, that seems like a no-brainer decision, right? Like, Jesus is king or Satan? But how many people prefer the temporary pleasures of the domain of darkness over the eternal joy of the kingdom of God. In our quiet hours, when we are alone, how many of us put off time in God's word in favor of learning more about the world through their endless status updates and streams of information in our households, how many of us prefer our selfish comfort and our own desires over the hard work of seeing Christ formed in the other members of our family? In the areas of sexuality, how many people prefer their own desires and temporary satisfaction over the long-term joy and beauty of God's design in marriage? In our community, in our, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, how many of us care more about what people think about us than what they think about Christ? How many people are content to live, give Jesus lip service when it seems beneficial to them without really recognizing him as Lord of their lives and Lord over heaven and earth? You see, we walk among the kingdoms of this world every day. And that's why the kingdom of God requires decisive response. We must repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. This is good news. Don't believe the lie that the way of this world and the way of our flesh is better than the way of Christ. His way is better. It is, it is the way to everlasting peace with God. It is the way to right relationship with other people. It is his creation. It is the way that, that, that we can have right relationship with his creation and, and even with ourselves and, and to rightly understand ourselves. That's his kingdom. And he is coming again. And now is the time now is the time to know and love Jesus 
ourselves. Now is the time to get equipped so that we can clearly communicate the message about him to others. Now is the time to introduce others to Jesus because the kingdom is at hand. Jesus has come and he's coming back soon. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This life, of whatever unguaranteed length we have, is the opportunity we are given to repent and believe the gospel. He has come once, he is coming again, and now is the time. Repent with urgency. That's the message. That's the message we must receive. It is the message we must proclaim. But how does that work itself out practically? Well, what does this repentance look like? That, that's the reason for the next scene, I believe. And the next scene is not what we might expect. We, we already read it, but just put yourself in this scene for a moment. Um, if the technology is working properly, you'll see a picture of the Sea of Galilee. And this is where Jesus was standing in this next scene, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this is the view from the Sea of Capernaum. Uh, the, the view of the Sea from Capernaum, I'm sorry. And so this is right about where Jesus would have been. Just get the picture in your head. Jesus on the side of a lake, of a sea. And Jesus is, is walking on the shore. He's maybe even maybe praying. And he's seeking out followers for himself. He's, he's going to make this general message of the kingdom very specific and personal now, after this great summary of the preaching of Jesus and, and his announcement of the kingdom of God, we, we might expect that Jesus is here to meet some really important people, at least in the world's eyes, right? Like, like maybe he's here to, to meet some great Jewish warriors to head up his army. Or maybe he's here uh, to meet some religious leaders who can help God's people get back to covenant faithfulness with God. Uh, maybe he's here to have a lunch meeting with some wealthy benefactors who can fund his ministry. No, instead, he, he looks out of the water and he sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew, casting a net into the sea from their boat. They were fishermen. Mark actually emphasizes the point so that we get it. This was their occupation. This was their identity. This was their livelihood. They're not warriors, not religious leaders, more like religious dropouts. They're not wealthy benefactors. They're just ordinary fishermen. Now, we know from the other gospel writers that Peter and Andrew had moved to Capernaum, which was on one side of the Sea of Galilee. They had moved from Bethsaida, where they had grown up, which was on the other side of the sea. And Capernaum was an important trade city. Uh, they were likely 
seeking a better life than what they could get in their hometown. Uh, we know Peter was married, so he had a household, a family to take care of. But we also know from John's gospel that, that Simon, Peter, and Andrew uh, had had a few prior encounters with Jesus. See, Andrew had been following John the Baptist for a little while, and, and one day John was walking with Andrew and, and another one of his disciples, and he, he saw Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Andrew's like, I behold, I behold, I see it. And, and so he runs and he gets his brother Simon, and he brings him to Jesus, and that's when we John says, Jesus gave him the name Peter. So there's some familiarity here. There's, there's some history here. That's all backstory that, that Mark doesn't include, that we have to piece together from the other Gospels. And so what we get from Mark is this very abbreviated version of their call, which then gives us a sense of decisiveness, of urgency, of resolve. Mark wants us to see the decisive moment of their repentance and faith. And at the climax of the scene, uh, Jesus calls out to them from the shore. Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. Because of the way Mark has set the scene, this kind of strikes us pretty hard. It, it kind of almost comes out from nowhere. This is a, a big call, and this is a call that only one with the authority that Jesus has could actually make. So just hang out there in that moment with these disciples as the call comes across the waters and hits their ears and hits their heart. What are they going to do? Are they going to follow this one who wants to change their lives and their livelihood? This one who has come to take away the sins of the world? Or will they keep trying to survive as fishermen? I mean, I wouldn't necessarily blame them at this point. This is a big risk. But if it's true, what a privilege. What a, a joy to know that the kingdom of God is at hand and that they are being called by the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. And Mark tells us that immediately they left their nets and followed him. This was such a no-brainer decision to them. It was such good news that they made decisive action. And not only that, Mark follows this up with another story of another call. Uh, just a little further down the shore, there are two more brothers named James and John. And they work for their dad, Zebedee, in the family business of fishing. Now, we know that this is a business because verse 20 tells us that they left Zebedee with his hired servants so that he had more employees than just his sons. And this was probably a rather wealthy family compared to Peter and Andrew. And the climax of this second scene is the same as the first. Immediately, Jesus called them. What are they going to do? Well, they do exactly what Peter and Andrew did. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Understand, not, not only is this leaving their livelihood, this is also leaving their family. That's a big deal in this culture. It's, it's not like today where leaving your family to go off to college or to find an occupation is kind of expected. It's typical. 
No, no, this is the legacy of Zebedee's business. Walking away and leaving him in the boat with his hired servants, with his employees. And that's the story. And in the story, we see three additional decisive responses to Jesus' call. Uh, first, we must re repent with urgency. Second, we must follow with resolve. We must follow with resolve. The main point of the story usually is found at the climax. So if you're, if you're following along with our reading plan, uh, I'm urging you to, to look at the narrative and to, to lay it out and to find the main point of the story, which is at the climax of the story. And here we have two scenes, so we have two climaxes, and it's in the call of Jesus here. One of them is spelled out. The other, we can assume, was roughly the same. The call was, follow me. Follow me. Follow implies that you're going to go where he goes. You're going to walk in the path that he walks. A following implies movement, growth. You, you can't stay in the same place and follow someone. You can't choose your own direction and then claim to be following that other person. You're going to, to learn and imitate and become like the one you're following. You're essentially becoming a disciple. I want you to understand this is not a different act than repenting and believing. This is not some act that happens after we come to faith in Christ. Like, like there's some people who believe, but they aren't really disciples, and, and they're just kind of, you know, they're saved, but they're, they're not really following. No, that does not exist in the scriptures. This is the decisive act to repent and believe the gospel. There is no true repentance in faith without turning from your old ways of life and turning to the ways of Jesus and beginning to follow. But the word follow shows us that the call to Jesus is not only about turning from like obvious sins or obvious sinful activity, though it includes that for sure. The call to Jesus is about surrendering the entire direction of your life to Christ. It means letting go of those things that once defined you. It means letting go of the thing that you trust to give you security. It means letting go of the thing that you value the most. What is that thing for you? What, what defines you? What gives you identity? What gives you a security? For, for these fishermen, I would suggest it was probably their livelihood. This is how they put food on their tables. This is what they've always known. This is who they were. They were fishermen. The call to Jesus even means risking the relationships that are closest to us. James and John just left their father in the boat. Now, Zebedee could have been okay with that, but, but maybe not. We, we don't really know. Either way, the call was the same. The, the demand on their lives was the same. And Jesus is asking a lot in this moment, and they need to respond. They, they aren't guaranteed another moment like this. Following Jesus is a decisive act. 
Jesus is calling them to act on what they have observed about him. Remember, this is not a completely blind faith. They have had some exposure to Jesus, but it is an early moment where they are called to decisively follow. They know a little bit right now. What they know is going to grow immensely by the end of their time with Jesus. They don't even now know that he's going to the cross. But they know enough to follow. And this is so important to understand for those who are considering Christ, those who have heard the good news about him, those who have been what we would say call evangelized. We have, we have our, our, our purposeful discipleship pathway, and we, we, we talk about uh, this proclaiming phase where people are evangelized. They hear the good news of Jesus. They, they hear that, that there is a God who wants to have a relationship with them and that he sent his son to die for them. And so many people hear that, but they fear that they don't have enough information to follow Jesus. They don't know enough to decide to follow him. And, and let's be honest, let's not blame them too hard on that. This is a big life-changing decision. But these are people who have been effectively evangelized. They've heard the truth about Jesus. They may even say they believe it intellectually, but they put off baptism. Or they put off committing to follow Jesus with a local church, which is intricately tied to baptism. They put off taking their next step in following Jesus because they are unsure of the unknown. And I want you to understand that is not following. And it is not repentance and belief. Here's the only question. The only unknown that someone needs to figure out in order to take the next step, in order to decisively follow that's this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you believe it? Do you believe that he is who he says he is? He is the king of the kingdom of God. If you believe that, then everything else will follow. You will go where he leads. You will trust his provision. You will be defined by your relationship to him. You will do what he says, whether that is baptism or embracing your role as a member of this body or getting equipped or telling others about him. You just keep believing and you just keep following. And the only real question is, do you believe that he is the Christ, the son of God? And if you believe that, then follow him with resolve. Following is not about arriving at the destination right away. Following is about becoming. It's about the process. And that's our next decisive response to the call of Jesus. Become with trust. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you become. Being a disciple is not about who you were it's about who you are becoming. Being a disciple is not about who you were. It's about who you were becoming. Jesus does not call those who have it all together. Jesus does not call those whom we would expect. It, typically, a rabbi shows those who chose him. 
A, a disciple was the one who initiated the relationship with the rabbi. They would seek out the rabbi. They would go out and find the one who they wanted to learn from, and they would ask him to teach them. But Jesus goes to those boys who are not looking for a rabbi. They, they aren't looking to be schooled up in the religious thought of the day. They, they probably learned the bare minimum in Torah school, and then they decided it was time to go back to the family business. And listen, that wasn't necessarily wrong. I'm not saying they were unrighteous in that. They just didn't really want to go follow a rabbi. In this way, Jesus is more like a prophet, like Elijah, who went and found Elisha as his disciple. He doesn't choose those who choose him. He makes the decisive choice first. Jesus doesn't choose those who choose him. He makes the decisive choice first. And when Jesus chooses and calls, he seeks out those who we would least expect. He seeks out fishermen. Poor fishermen, rich fishermen, doesn't really matter. Later he seeks out tax collectors and zealots and prostitutes and, and literally the most ragtag group of men and women that you could possibly imagine. See, when it comes to following Jesus, it's not about who you were. It's about who you are becoming. And that requires trust. Requires trust. It's a, it requires saying, you know what, I'm, I'm letting go of who I was, and I'm, I'm embracing who Christ is making me to be. This is why we say, don't take all the steps, just take the next step. So I want you to imagine this. If you were going out on a backpacking trip into the wilderness for the very first time, and maybe some of you are experienced in, in backpacking or something like that, just pretend like it's your first time. Would you feel comfortable if I just gave you a map and said, you know what, here's where you start, and here's where you end, and, and this is what you will encounter along the way, look out for rattlesnakes over here, and watch out for this cliff over there. Would you feel comfortable with that, or, or, or would you be more comfortable with a guide who would not only, does not only have the map, but who also knew that wilderness like the back of his hand? Like, for sure, we want the guide. As we follow him, we learn all of his tricks and all of his skills. He, he likely keeps us alive. We just got to trust the guide. When Jesus calls you to follow, you don't need to see the whole map. You just need to know that you are with the best guide. You need to trust him. And as you trust him, you will become like him. As you trust Jesus, you will grow to abide in him and begin to bear his fruit and take on his character. You're going to learn his priorities and begin to embrace his kingdom purposes. He will equip you in his ways. Remember, that's the, the middle phase of our discipleship pathway, the equipping phase, getting, getting established so that you can be sent out. And this is a process, it's a journey, but we are not alone. We have the best guide, and so take the next step. And we don't get to physically follow Jesus like Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John, but we have something, according to Jesus, that is even better. Jesus said, if, if I don't go to the Father, I can't send you another helper the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, 
the comforter who indwells us and leads us in following him. He is the very presence of God with us. He is God in us. And we become through trusting him. Do you trust him? Do you trust that his way is better and his word is true and that his purposes for you are more important than your own desires? See, when we decisively respond to the call of Jesus with repentance, with following, we become like him, which means we are, are starting to do the things that he does. His activity becomes our activity, which means that his kingdom message becomes our message. We begin to proclaim the good news of the kingdom just like he did. That's what Jesus promised these fishermen would become as they followed him. Uh, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. The final decisive response to the call of Jesus is to multiply with conviction. Multiply with conviction. See, from the moment of their first call, the disciples knew that multiplication was in their future. No longer would they catch fish, now they would catch people. And I am sure that they had virtually no idea what that would actually look like, but the image is simple enough. Just like unassuming fish get caught up in a net, unassuming people, just like they were right now, would get caught up in the call of the kingdom. Jesus said later in a parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. See, fishing for men means calling all into the kingdom. It means following Jesus in his proclamation that the time has come, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, we have to understand this, that the inseparable from the call to Jesus is the vision of calling others to Jesus. Inseparable from the call to Jesus is the vision of calling others to Jesus. It was part of his purpose for his disciples from the very beginning. Now, there was a, a lot that would happen before they would start doing that. A good bit of time would pass before they had their first opportunity to participate in, in, in a mission themselves. But they knew what they were getting into from the get-go. And I want you to know, if, if no one ever told you this before they led you to Christ, Jesus wants to make you become a fisher of men. Jesus wants to use you to proclaim his message. He wants to use you to multiply the gospel with conviction. You get to tell others the good news that has saved you and brought you into right relationship with God. And once you understand the message and you can communicate it clearly, you must tell others about it. This is such a privilege. There's such urgency to this because others need to know what has saved you. Don't hold that to yourself. He has called us and we must pursue spreading 
His good news of the kingdom far and wide. We make the decisive choice to tell others. Do it even this week. If you don't feel like you know the gospel clearly enough to communicate it, go get clarity on it. I have plenty of resources to help you with that. Any believer who you see living on mission, who knows how to tell somebody else about Jesus, can help you gain clarity on that. But there comes a point where the excuse of saying, I don't know enough, is just that. It's an excuse. And there comes a point when you need to fish, when you need to multiply. And as I think about the urgency of this call of, to Jesus, I, I think about the life of the missionary C.T. Studd, and, and, and particularly a poem that he wrote a little later in his life. But, but C.T. Studd was, was born into a wealthy family in Great Britain in the year 1860. He, he was born into a, this wealthy family, and he was a successful cricket player. Essentially, he had everything in this world that he needed, but his dad began to came to Christ and began to realize that he needed to impress Jesus upon his son. And so he was doing that for about a year. And then a preacher encountered C.T. Studd one day. He said, are you a Christian? And from his daddy, he knew enough to give a good religious answer, but, but it was unconvincing to the preacher. And, and so the preacher, just like we've been talking about, he didn't, he didn't just accept the unconvincing answer. He, he pressed the point. He clarified the gospel. And C.T. Studd received eternal life through faith in Christ. And then over the next six years, he struggled. And he backslid in his faith. And he, he didn't really act on that heart conversion. The Lord was still at work, and he got a hold of him through a few experiences of tragedy and through the preaching of D.L. Moody. And eventually that led C.T. Studd to China uh, to serve with Hudson Taylor, the, the missionary. And uh, he, he then later went to India, and then ultimately it ended up in Africa, where he died in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And C.T. Studd understood after those six years of backsliding, after, after not realizing the urgency of the kingdom, he realized that there is a decisive call to Christ. There's a decisive call to follow, and he must respond. And so he wrote this poem, Two Little Lines I Heard One Day, Traveling Along Life's Busy Way, Bringing Conviction to My Heart, and from my mind would soon depart. Only one life. It will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. By the way, this is in your notes on the back. Follow along. Only one life. Yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. That in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays, I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. 
Only what life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, that word to keep faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And let my love with fervor burn, and let the world now let, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life. Twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, that will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for me. Is that what you want? Have you heard that call of Jesus Christ? But you understand, following Jesus might not take you to China, India, or Africa. It might. But the words of C.T. Studd still ring true for you and for me today that we have only one life. It will soon be over, and it is only what is done in the pursuit of following Jesus that will have any eternal value at all. Because the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Now is the time. Repent with urgency. Be, follow with resolve. Become with trust. Multiply with conviction. Decisively respond to the good news by repenting, following, becoming, and multiplying. What's your next step today? Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.